Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. We're going to be back in 1 Timothy this morning, so if you have your Bible or a copy of the Scriptures, would you open to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning? First Timothy chapter 3, it's going to take us a few weeks to get through this, the qualifications of an elder, and then we'll focus in on the qualifications of a deacon, and there'll be a, uh, an incarnation sermon mixed in there as well, but that's where we're going to be in the next few weeks, and I'm excited to study this with you. I hope it'll be helpful and encouraging and also formative. So if you've had a, uh, enough time to make your way to First Timothy chapter 3, Would you just follow along as I read the first seven verses? Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders." so that he may not fall into disgrace, into into a snare of the devil. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the gathering of saints and the encouragement that comes through singing and participating in the Lord's Supper and for hearing your Word read. And now as we focus our worship on the teaching of your Word, Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts, that you would fill our minds with knowledge, that you would... Uh, comfort us, but also give us direction. As a church, we need to know, we need to understand what the elders and overseers and pastors in our lives must be. And as men, we should strive for these things. So help us to see these qualifications as a blessing and as a guide for us as both men and as a church. And Lord, I do pray in those areas where confrontation is going to happen, where difficult interpretations may be given. Lord, I pray that you would give us willing hearts to receive your word and be shaped by it. So Lord, have your way with us now as we study your word and accomplish your purpose through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now one of the obvious takeaways from this passage of scripture is the fact that God intends for his church to have pastors. God intends for his people to be led, to to have overseers who help to oversee the life and ministry of the church. This is God's purpose. This is God's intention. He has always raised up leaders to guide and lead his people. And in this particular age, in this church age as we know it, he has called 
overseers, and we'll discuss that term and what it means, what we generally refer to as elders or pastors. God wants his church to have faithful pastors. And throughout church history, the role of the pastor has shifted, it has changed, and not always for the better. I won't go through all of church history here, this is just an introduction, but let's talk about some common trends today. One of the most common trends is to view the pastor as CEO. Business principles have made their way into the church, and the the pastor as CEO is a very common model, it's a very common expectation. The CEO-type pastor is a visionary leader. He applies business principles to his role. He measures success when he satisfies the desires of church attendees and experiences numerical growth as an organization, and I'm using that kind of terminology. He recruits a team of high-output men and women to help keep things going in the direction of success. His goal is growth and expansion And he is willing to lead the church where it wouldn't otherwise go. The CEO model is very prominent in our world today, but I find it very much lacking in the scriptures. Some view the pastor more like a priest, where an entire person's spiritual life is dependent upon him. Uh, And and we've seen something new in the last couple of years. Of course, it it was around before, but it's just become more prominent since 2020. We've seen the rise of the online church, And this situation has uh, given rise to the online pastor. People have reduced the pastor's role down to teaching only. And it's it's really the kind of teaching that's convenient for the the viewer. You don't need to bother with with church life. You don't need to bother with social interactions with other believers. You can just listen online whenever you feel like it. And if the sermon starts going in a direction you don't like, you can just stop it and you can go search for some other video to watch of something else that might encourage you in your particular situation. The online pastor is a new phenomenon. And and don't get me wrong, I appreciate the fact that we can listen to and see some of the most gifted preachers in the world just by doing a YouTube search. But If I'm just being honest with you, when I read the New Testament, I get the impression that God intends for pastors to have a much more involved ministry in the lives of his people than just the occasional online sermon. Mark Dever writes, It is well for us to recognize that the Bible presents authority and leadership in the church as good things, even necessary things. Things that, when exercised rightly, greatly promote spiritual health and growth in the local church. And things that, when exercised wrongly, damage spiritual health. Things that, when not exercised at all, lead to the dangerous confusion of God's flock, the weakening attrition of the church, and the debilitating atrophy of Christ's body. I think Mark is right on that. You see, God intends for his people to have pastors who lead and teach the flock. God gave us pastors because we need pastors. Just like the church in Ephesus, the church that Timothy is leading and Paul is writing to him in regard to, just like the church in Ephesus needed a pastor. Some of the leaders in that church had shown themselves to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And in the vacuum created by corrupt leadership, a group of women had begun to assert themselves into a role that they were not fit for. 
And in this environment, false teaching was common, division was prevalent, and so Paul sent Timothy this letter, and he is instructing him on how to appoint elders and deacons in the church, faithful leaders who can assist him in getting things in the church back on track, right? That's the context of the letter that we're reading here. And with all of this in mind, let's take a look at the qualifications that make a man fit to be an overseer in the church. Let's look back at verse 1. We'll, we'll see that he must first desire the office. He must first desire the office. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, there's a lot going on here. First of all, there are five trustworthy statements in Paul's letters. This is the second time that we've seen Paul use this phrase, that this is a trustworthy statement, and there are, there are several others that we'll see throughout his writings. But what he's saying is that there are five reliable tr- statements. These are statements that we believe were probably common at that time. They were um, wisdom, if you will, that, that's just being passed down, that's being communicated. And Paul is affirming this one when he says that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But the first trustworthy statement, we saw that back in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. You can let your eyes go over there because this is probably the most important one. In, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There is no surer foundation for our souls than the fact that God has provided the Savior we all need in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save us from sin. So that's one of those trustworthy statements. And then the second one is the one we have before us today, where Paul says, if a man desires to serve in the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the other three statements, I'm not going to get to them today. There's just too much to talk about, but you can find them in 1 Timothy 4, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 11, and Titus 3, 8. But Paul reminds us here that to serve in this office is to do a noble thing. And that means a good thing, a thing that is worthy of praise. And the reason that that is true is because to pursue this task is to pursue something of great importance and value in the eyes of God. And as such, no man should enter into this pursuit lightly because it entails a great responsibility. An overseer is charged with caring for and shepherding over the flock of God. An overseer is charged with feeding God's people a steady diet of God's Word so that they can be strong and healthy for the spiritual life they're called to live in this world. An overseer is referred to as a guardian of men's souls, and at the end of his service, he must give an accounting of his work to the Lord himself. We read about this in Hebrews 13, where the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And the one that we will give an account to is the Lord himself. So no one should seek this office unless they are clear and fully agreeable to the responsibilities and accountability that it entails. And that's interesting because today people seek out the role of a pastor or a minister for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are in fact noble, as Paul says here, but some seek out less noble 
well, uh, that, that role in a less noble or honorable way. Some th- seek the authority that it brings. That seems to be something of what's going on in Ephesus. These are individuals who like the authority. They like the spotlight. They like to be able to make certain statements about people's lives and have that kind of control. And we see that today as authority within the church is abused time and time again. We call them scandals when they hit the media, but it's not truly a scandal because it happens all the time. People seek out this office for the wrong reason. Some are in it for the money. Some are in it for the notoriety that comes with being a leader. Some have more sinister spiritual goals. Some of that has been revealed in our lifetime. But I believe that only a select few truly want the burden of caring for the sinner saints who make up the body of Christ on earth. The role of an elder or an overseer, a shepherd of God's people, is a great privilege. But let me just let you know, it also comes with many sleepless nights. It leaves deep scars because shepherds have to fight off wolves and sometimes we get bitten by the very sheep we are seeking to defend. Shepherds bleed. One of my first um, advisors or counselors, encouragement uh, received early on in ministry was a guy who told me this, and he has, his statement has proven true. Shepherds bleed. They sacrifice. They serve others with love and humility. Being a shepherd, being a pastor, means a life given to the care of others, as well as an understanding that suffering for the sake of the gospel is just part of the calling. It means making hard decisions that someone in the room isn't going to agree with. It means studying God's word and meditating on the truth and laboring to see Christ formed in believers. It means preaching the word in season and out of season and then dealing with the consequences of that very task. There are blessings like uh, weddings and new babies being born. There are the weightier matters of burying people as they pass away. Sometimes those are celebrations, sometimes they're not. Being a pastor is a blessing, but it comes at a cost. It means constantly praying for yourself because you don't feel up to the task. It means constantly praying for your family that God would protect them from, the, from Satan's attacks. It, it means constantly praying for your church and those in the church who are not always the happiest people to be around. Um, because we are hurting people. We are sinful people. We live in a broken world. At times we get angry. At times we show our immaturity. At times we are burdened with the cares of the world and we're confused about what to do. And the shepherd's role, the overseer's role, is to step into that and guide and pray and care and instruct. It means working to undo the false teaching that some in the church have been steeped in for years. I can't even begin to tell you how many hours, days, weeks we spend as elders working with brothers and sisters who've come into the church and they're dealing with the baggage of either spiritual abuse or just false teaching that has been riveted into them by previous pastors. Being an overseer comes with the daily reminder that you are not able to be all that the people want you to be. But by God's grace, you can be the shepherd that Christ calls you to be. There are blessings associated with this, but there are also burdens associated with this. And I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm simply trying to be honest with you about my experience and the experience uh, or the, the word, what it reveals to us about the role of the shepherd. It is a weighty calling. 
And when a man understands all of this and seeks it out with an eager desire to serve the Lord and his people, guess what? He is desiring a noble thing. That's a good desire. But Paul makes clear in this passage that desire alone is not enough to secure someone in the role of an overseer. In the verses that follow, Paul lists out 10 qualifications that must be present in the man who seeks this office. Six of them are positive, four of them are negative. What he must be and what he must not be. And these qualifications hardly mention the tasks of an elder. They're more focused on the character of an elder. So first, he must desire the office, and part of desiring the office is understanding what the office entails. But second, he must have an excellent character. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and here are the negatives, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Now, four times in this passage, Paul tells us what an overseer must be. If you just let your eyes scan through the text, you'll see this. It's a repetitive phrase. The overseer must be above reproach. The overseer must manage his own household well. The, The overseer must not be a recent convert, and he must be thought well of by outsiders. Must is the language of necessity. Not This is not negotiable here. This is essential to the role. These are standards set by Christ himself, and church leaders are ultimately striving to be like Christ in the way that we serve. We don't do that perfectly, but we should be striving to do that faithfully. So the musts are important. But by the way, before we get into the list of characteristics and qualifications and that kind of stuff, there's there some confusion maybe about the term overseer. Because there's no one in this room that we generally call an overseer. We use the term elder. And the question is, well, how does that term, uh, how does that connect with this word overseer? The word overseer in the Greek is the word episkopos. It's often been rendered as bishop throughout church history. We don't have bishops in the sense of the Episcopal Church or the Catholic Church, but that's what the word comes from. But there are other terms in the New Testament that are given to describe what we understand to be the same role. Those terms include presbyteros, which is where we get the term elder, and poimenos, which is where we get the term shepherd or pastor. And then in addition to these, we see the word preacher and teacher. So there's all these different terms describing Um, the different offices and tasks of leading the flock of God. All of these terms refer to those who serve in the church leadership in some capacity. But these three terms, overseer, elder, and pastor, they're used interchangeably. They're used to refer to the same office. In fact, in many passages of Scripture, we'll see both terms used to describe the same thing. There are a handful of these. I'm not going to give you all of them, but I am going to give you one of them. To illustrate this point, uh, in Acts chapter 20, do you remember Acts chapter 20? We've talked about it because it's pertinent to this particular letter. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet with him. He's on his way to Macedonia. He calls the, the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet with him. And that word, 
elder is used, presbyteros. He calls all the presbyteros together to meet with him. And then in the midst of discussing what he needs to discuss with them, in verse 28, he says, to these elders, he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for the church of God. So they are elders and they serve to oversee the flock of God. So you can hopefully see that these terms are used interchangeably to refer to the same office. And that's how we understand those three terms. And, and look, just to simplify things, here at Cornerstone, we use the term elder exclusively to refer to those men who've been recognized by the church to have the character and the gifts and the maturity and the temperament to fulfill the office of an elder. One other thing that I will mention is that Unless the text is describing the office of an elder, every time we see these terms in the New Testament, they occur in the plural. So unless we see um, the office of an elder must be made up by men of this qualification, office there or elder there is referred to in a singular sense. Every time we see it being being, uh, worked out in churches in the book of Acts or when Paul tells Uh, Titus to appoint elders. Every other time we see that term, it occurs in the plural. And by that, we infer that God intends his church not to just be led by one elder, but by a plurality of elders. And some of those elders are going to serve in maybe a different capacity. For instance, here, I am the main preaching elder, but all of our elders are able to preach and do preach on occasion. Um, All of the elders, however, do have the same authority within the congregation. So we are an elder-led church that believes in a plurality of elders as well as a parity in terms of our pastoral authority. Are y'all confused yet? I hope not. Parity just simply means we all have equal authority. I don't get two votes in decisions that are made. Every elder gets one vote. That's the way we operate. And different churches are going to do things differently. The Presbyterian church is going to have two different, two different um, categories for elders. They're going to have ruling elders and they're going to have teaching elders. We don't believe that that's necessarily a biblical pattern. Um, but so different churches are going to do things differently. That's how we do things here because of what we see in Scripture. And years ago, one of our former church members, uh, a dearly beloved brother who's gone on to be with the Lord, Mr. T.S. Lamb, he sought to concretely symbolize this plurality and parity when he bought the elders a round table to serve as the centerpiece for our elders' meetings. And we still have that table, Nick. No one sits at the head of the table. There is no King Arthur at our round table. No one sits at the head of the table. We all have equal authority, and no one sits alone. We all serve together. So that's just a little bit of background on on this term and how we use it and understand it. Now let's look at the first biblical requirement that must be true of an elder. It is that he must be above reproach. Above reproach. And this may seem odd because, honestly, when we start thinking about pastors in in, the church today, one of the first things we think about is their technical giftedness. We're we're not thinking so much about them being above reproach. We want to know, can they do the job? Can they preach the Word of God? Can they lead a staff of ministers? Do they have a track record of success? Those are the questions that are often asked when considering an elder or a preacher or pastor for the church. Those are, are qualifications that many of us want to ask, but Paul intentionally prioritizes godly character over technical expertise. Did you hear that? 
The, the scriptures continually prioritize godly character over technical expertise, and we should do the same. An elder must be above reproach. And this phrase means that there are no grounds for reproach, literally no grounds for an accusation against him to stick. No grounds for blame have been found in him. This does not mean that a man is perfect or must be perfect and without fault. No man save Christ can live up to that standard. If I, don't, if I need to confess this, I will. It, most of you know this well and understand this because you know theology. Your elders are not perfect men. We are flawed and sinful men. But we are striving to be faithful men. But just like every son of Adam born in this world, we are all fallen and sinful. But the idea here behind above reproach is that the man must have the highest degree of respectability within the congregation. It means that his life is not riddled with controversy and scandal. He doesn't have disagreements that he's holding on to with multiple people within the body. If someone brings a charge against him, that charge can either be proven false or it can be quite easily explained or dealt with. This is not an individual who's a troublemaker. It means, I believe, that all or nearly all of the congregation will agree that this man is a model of faithful leadership in the church and in his home and in the community. That's what I'm, I believe as I study the text and look at the rest of Scripture, what above reproach means. This is a person of high character. Now, the reason I've been saying that that is within the congregation is because in verse 7, Paul addresses the elders' testimony among outsiders, which implies those outside of the church, which leads me to assume that this phrase, above reproach, has to do with one's relationship with those inside the church. And in other words, if you look at verses 1 through 7, all told, it says that those who would serve as elders must have a high degree of respect inside as well as outside of the congregation. Does that make sense? Okay. He must be above reproach. That's the first one. The second one is that he must be the husband of one wife. So in addition to being a man that is above reproach, an elder must be the husband of one wife. And now we have come to the second most debated verse in this book. What is going on here? Some of your Bibles will translate the phrase a little bit differently. Some will, will translate it a one-woman man. That's one way to look at this. And one of the questions we have to ask is, what was the problem that the Apostle Paul was trying to address in giving these qualifications the way that he did? Like, what's the issue, or what is one of the common issues that we can see Old Testament, New Testament, that would help us understand how this should be understood? Some suggest that polygamy was the problem. That the, the man must be the husband of one wife because there was polygamous relationships were very common in the Roman culture uh, in Ephesus, and, and maybe that's true, but... That doesn't seem to be a consistent problem in the New Testament. So to single that out as the major issue here doesn't seem to fit. Others suggest that Paul means to exclude those who have never been married. And that doesn't make any sense because Paul talks about himself as being unmarried and he encourages people to follow his lead in that if you look at 1 Corinthians. So that doesn't seem to be the issue. One of the most commonly held views is that Paul excludes anyone from serving as an elder if they have been divorced or widowed and then remarried. That's probably the most common way that this verse is understood. Aside from the 
the one woman man idea, which in, in, in some sense, I think that's, that's clear in the text. That should be the case. But, but I think there's more to it. Let's think about this for a minute. In general, we can all agree, or we should all agree, that an elder who is married must be completely faithful to his wife alone. Amen? By the way, you can say amen every now and then if I say something that you agree with and you want to affirm your agreement with it. You can do that. Uh, so an elder who is married must be completely faithful to his wife alone. Along with Scripture, we expect our leaders to hold the marriage bed in honor. We must all agree that sexual immorality and church leadership are incompatible. But is that all that Paul's talking about here? Is there more to this? This verse, this actually it's just a phrase, this phrase doesn't mention divorce or remarriage directly. So we should be somewhat cautioned against saying something that the text doesn't actually say. But at the same time, I don't think the standard that Paul aims to convey here is simply that a man should be faithful to whatever wife he currently has, no matter how many he's had before. I don't think that's the standard. This list of qualifications intends to hold elder candidates to a higher than normal standard of faithfulness. In other words, you don't have to be a person above reproach completely to be a church member, but you do to be an elder. Elders are held to a higher standard. An elder is to be a man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and I believe only wife. Those who oversee the church of Christ, who care for God's children on earth, who preach and teach the word of the living God must be intentionally and perhaps uncommonly faithful in the most important human relationship afforded to men. Now you may hold a different position than that. It's fine. My elders may hold a different position than that. I don't think they do. But that's, that's where I land. In verse 4, Paul addresses the elder's ability to manage his household. And if he is incapable of managing his house, he is not qualified to manage the church. I remember early on in discussing with the, uh, the, the elders and deacons as I was candidating for this position, I, I brought that up. I actually wrote a little bit of a paper uh, on my pastoral ministry philosophy, and I prioritized my family because my understanding is if I'm not faithful there, I don't belong here. So with that understanding, a man who cannot manage his house is not qualified to manage the church, and understanding that marriage is the fundamental relationship at the heart of the home, and a failure to love one's wife, a failure to lead one's wife, a failure to maintain a godly marriage seems out of character to me for one who seeks to oversee the congregation. Years ago, I served on staff with a pastor who had been married and divorced. I had been a believer for about I don't know, maybe 10 months when I, uh, I, I was a very young believer, 21 years old, probably should not have been appointed to that office, but I was. And the pastor that served over me, he was a man that had been married and divorced. And he was divorced on the grounds that his wife had been knowingly unfaithful to him and sought a divorce from him. And the church agreed that the divorce was not his fault, and therefore he was allowed to continue serving as pastor. And shortly after that, he was remarried. And then within a few years, problems arose in that new marriage. 
Some of the same failures that had caused his first marriage to unravel in sin were once again causing the second marriage to unravel in sin. And the fault was not his alone. However, this man had proven himself to be unfit to manage his home, to love and nurture the faith of his wife, and he had disqualified himself from the office. The church suffered as a result, and eventually the leaders came to a better understanding or a different understanding of the importance of this qualification. This qualification and the rest on this list are intended, hear me now, are intended to protect the church from unfit and incompetent leaders. And yes, I know that's a strong term, but that's what it's there for. It is intended to protect the church and the integrity of the gospel from unfit and incompetent leaders. As elders and deacons at Cornerstone, we hold one another to high standards in doctrine as well as in life, and we aim to set a faithful example to all would-be leaders in the future. And I can confess to you, my constant prayer in elders' meetings and in elders' and deacons' meetings over the last 13 years, ever since I've been here, my constant prayer among those leaders has been for the Lord to strengthen each of our marriages. It, it's, a, it's something I pray for every time we get together. Asking the Lord to increase our love for our wives and despite our flaws to increase our wives' love for us as well as our mutual love for Christ. I have asked the Lord to do this over and over and over again and I will continue to do this so that we can serve with joy without the burden and the distraction that comes with broken homes, and so that we can be a faithful example to the church. And here's what I would ask you to do. As a church, I would ask you to pray for us. I would ask you to pray for us. Pray for your elders, pray for your deacons, pray for our wives, pray for our marriages, and pray for our relationship with our children. Pray for each of us to have a deep and growing relationship with Christ, as well as a faithful and growing relationship with our wives. Please pray for us. But in addition to being above reproach and the husband of one wife, notice back in the text that it says that an elder must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. And I believe that these three attributes go together. They form kind of a, a, a little triple understanding of the fact that an elder must exhibit a high level of self-mastery. He must be able to control himself in his mind, in his actions, and in his relationships. To be sober-minded, well, we, we talk about that. We know what that means. It means to be level-headed and, and temperate. That's the word that is often used here. It, it means not given to extremes in behavior or beliefs. Not a person who's tossed around, but a person who thinks clearly, a person who knows the truth. He must not be the kind of man who's easily provoked to frustration or anger, a man who thinks first before responding in an uncontrolled manner. He must be sober-minded. He must also be self-controlled, and this means to govern one's passions and desires. He's not prone to excessive emotional outburst or to live beyond his means. He's not prone to be a person who runs hard after this thing and then changes his mind and runs hard after that thing. He's a person who is self-controlled. He is even-tempered. And he exercises self-control. And then the last term is to be respectable. 
And this has to do with relationships. It means to live in an admirable and moderate lifestyle with others. This is a man who, who is respected by others, and he lives in such a way that those relationships are healthy and encouraging. He knows how to control himself. He has a well-organized mind and a well-organized life. He's not a man whose passions are easily inflamed, but is able to maintain self-mastery in his thinking, in his actions, and in his interactions with others. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot of words, but it's important. Here's the point. Paul is saying this, that a man who cannot control himself has little business seeking to control the flock of God. How can a man be fit to exercise authority over others if he is not already exercising authority over himself? Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Next, we learn that an elder must be hospitable. Hospitable. The word here is philoxenos, and you, you might be familiar with Philadelphia and city of brotherly love. So this philos, the idea there, or phileo, the idea is love. And this is a particular love to strangers. Philoxenos. To be hospitable is to be generous with, to others with one's time, one's material goods. And, and there's, a, there's a context here. In the ancient Near Eastern world, they didn't have as many inns and hotels and opportunities for travel weren't as easy to come by as they are in our own day. And so for uh, strangers, neighbors, or even other believers traveling, coming into a city with a church, it was expected that the pastor would open his home, the pastor would share his goods. That, that is, that's a, a symptom or at least a, a, an indication that this is a kind and generous man. This is a friendly individual who's welcoming to all. That's the idea behind this. And oh, by the way, not only is this, um, this hospitality a high bar for the elder, but this is, hospitality is also a calling that lays upon all believers. In Hebrews 13, verse 1, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. You know that verse, right? What is the point? The point is not, oh, wow, there might be angels walking among us. The the point is, be hospitable, because you don't know who you're caring for. And that falls on all of us, but especially to those who would be elders. And the sixth qualification, and this is where we'll wrap it up. We're just going to deal with the positives this week. We'll come back next week. The sixth qualification is that an elder must be able to teach. Able to teach. And this is the first technical skill that is mentioned in the list. An elder must be able to teach. He must be able to handle the word of God and to instruct others in it. And I would add, he must be especially skillful imparting knowledge to others and helping them to live in accordance with it. And in our, in, in our culture of entertainment, the church has often traded the faithful and skillful teacher of God's word for something else, right? Instead of the guy who's going to faithfully teach the word of God in context and seek to uh, illustrate it and apply it to the life of the people, um, a lot of churches are looking for storytellers, which, by the way, I'd love to be a great storyteller. But that's not my main calling. Storyteller is not one of the qualifications here. Being a motivational speaker is not one of the qualifications here. Being funny, I mean humor, we elevate humor in our culture, especially, I remember some friends of ours years ago once told me, I can't, I can't go to a church where the pastor's not funny. 
And I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I'd love to be more funny. I'm, that's just not my thing. I'm just not aimed that way. Humor is not a problem, but when you elevate that over the ability to faithfully teach, then what you've done is you've watered down the qualifications. One of the most important responsibilities of a pastor is that he has to be able to teach God's people God's word. And this is one of the, one of the few characteristics uh, or qualifications that stands out in the list of elders over the list of deacons is they must be able to teach. The preaching elder should work hard to hone the skill so that he can be more f- effective when he stands in the pulpit, but he must be able to teach. Because the preaching and teaching of the Word of God must be the anchor of the pulpit in the church. Now I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to get into 2 Timothy, because there's, a, there's a, a charge that Paul gives to Timothy there that applies here. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preaching and teaching. These are high and important responsibilities. And I would even add, it's one of the the most important responsibilities in terms of skill that the office is charged to do. Because what we are doing is we are preaching the word of God to the people of God. Those called to shepherd the people of God are called to do so by proclaiming the Word of God. We we preach the Word. We are commanded to preach His Word and not our Word. We are to preach the message of Christ, not the message of the world. We are to preach the Word of God. And guess what? You must be willing consistently to receive it. I mean, yes, we're talking about the qualifications of an elder here, but there are also responsibilities that fall upon the people of God. We must preach the word faithfully. You must faithfully receive it. Both the preacher and the church member have a responsibility. Elders must preach the Bible at all times, even when it makes you uncomfortable, even when it is out of season. In other words, the culture doesn't like it. And Christians must listen carefully to the word, receive it joyfully, and apply it to their lives. That's how this relationship works. The consistent and faithful preaching of God's word is the most important service that a pastor can render to his congregation. That is my humble opinion. It is not the only service but I believe it is the most valuable because God's word is his chosen instrument in bringing life to his people. And as the people of God, we must must come in contact with the scriptures, both those things that comfort us and those things that confront us so that we can know the will of God and be shaped by the word of God. Now, obviously, there are more qualifications in this list. We'll continue to study this in the weeks to come. But for today, let's remember a couple of things. An elder must have a desire to serve in that office. And if he desires to serve in that office with an understanding of all that it entails, or at least some of what it entails, he is desiring a noble thing. It is a worthwhile thing. It is a good thing. But that man should count the cost of what it means to step into the role of shepherding God's people. It demands a heavy toll, and because of this, it requires an unusual strength of character which we'll continue to study next week. But let's also remember this, that 
that the ultimate role of earthly shepherds is to point to the true and better shepherd. That's my job. The elder's role is to serve as an under-shepherd to Christ himself. Jesus told the disciples, I am the good shepherd. A hired hand cares nothing for the sheep, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The pastor can't save you. Only Christ can because he's the good shepherd. He gave his life to save you from your sins. The elder's role is not to be the guy in the church with all the answers who can meet all of your needs. Our role is to point you to that guy. He's the one who has all the answers. He's the one who can meet all of your needs. In the end, the role of the elder is to direct your heart and your mind and your life to Jesus. He's the true shepherd. He's the one who gave his life to set us free. He is the perfect shepherd. And my job is to point you to him. And I'm going to pray for not only myself, but all of us, that we could understand this role more faithfully. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us these qualifications. Thank you for setting the bar high. Thank you for giving us the strength and the wisdom that we need as men and women to make faithful decisions. Hold us fast to your word, especially as we consider new leaders in the future and maybe even right around the corner. Lord, help us, guard us, protect us, and, and let us take the instruction that you've given and lay it over the process and, and let us be faithful to your word. And Lord, I do pray that as elders, that Mark, Dan, Jeff, and myself, Father, that you would strengthen us, that you would grant us the grace needed every day so that we can be what you've called us to be. Deliver us from ourselves, from our own foolishness and our own weakness, and help us to be strong and faithful shepherds. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church with our ministry, and that in the days to come, that you would continue to keep us unified as a body, in large part because we've done what you've told us to do in appointing faithful men to these offices. Lord, I also thank you for, the, for Christ, for Jesus, for all that he is and all that he's done. Help us to understand that the main part of our role is to point people's hearts and, and hope to him. And I pray that for those among us this morning who've heard the gospel sung and read and taught, Lord, I pray that it would bear fruit in their hearts for your glory and for their joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.